0: Welcome to Gear for Growth. I'm your host, Mike Mortlock, Managing Director of MCG Quantity Surveyors. And in another edition of this bonus podcast series where we're looking at the property investing journey from start to finish. Today we're talking about common pitfalls that investors make and of course how you can avoid them. I'm joined today by the fabulous Narelle Glynn from Hunter Advocates. She has a fantastic background in financial services and we dive into that and talk a little bit about loan books for major banks and how they assess them. She shares some great gold about that and we talk about her top tips to help property investors avoid some of the mistakes that she's seeing regularly. It's an awesome interview with Narelle and I'm sure you're going to get a lot out of it. Here's Narelle. Narelle Glynn, thanks for joining me on Geared for Growth.
1: Thanks Mike, great to be here.
0: I've been looking forward to getting you on because you are what I would describe as a proper, clever person. Uh, not, not to discourage anyone else who's been a previous guest, but what I mean by that is you've got some street cred in the financial space. So can you tell us a little bit about your financial background?
1: Yeah, of course. And and first I'll just start by describing how I came to be a buyer's agent as the um, the nexus of uh, IQ, EQ and PQ. Um, and I think you're referring perhaps to the IQ part of it, which is, you know, training and undergrad degrees in, in law and commerce. But I went on to become a chartered accountant um, and worked with what's known as a big four accounting firm. So I was in the audit uh, team here in Melbourne, particularly in financial services. So a lot of my clients were uh, the big banks like the National Australia Bank, uh, Bendigo Bank, and also insurers and asset managers. So definitely a um, a data geek. As much as I try and um, shy away from that fact, I can't. It's in my blood now and um, I can't make decisions without data.
0: You've come to the right place. You're amongst your people here, Narelle. Um, I mean, I, I, I enjoy trolling through tax legislation. We love data here, so let's embrace it. (laughs) It's
1: tragic, isn't it? And then just to round it out, EQ, I spent the last part of my um, career before becoming a buyer's agent in strategic HR and talent roles, certified coach as well. So I really do understand what makes people tick Mm -hmm. and the different, you know, mindsets that people bring to their decision making so I can really help people, uh, guide people through it. And then finally, the PQ, uh, which is all about property, a total property geek, live and breathe residential property, uh, but also love to bring in the data side of it. So people are understanding really what sits behind that financial decision and how to make better decisions and get better properties.
0: You've round, rounded out all the bases there. I think that's, uh, that's impressive. I, I want to ask you, in your capacity working in the big four with the banks and the auditing side of things, you actually had quite a bit to do to, with assessing kind of like the, the risk matrix of the whole sort of loan book. So you weren't necessarily looking at, you know, Joe Bloggs is two weeks behind <laughs> on repayments, but you're talking about the book as a whole. What, what were some of the standouts? What are some of the interesting things that you learned from that experience?
1: Yeah, I was part of the, um, the, the credit team of the National Bank at a really interesting time in financial services history, really. It was um, what we refer to here as the global financial crisis. So it was pretty stressful and dynamic times, actually. And when we talk about an, an Australian you know, lending or our, our deposit-taking institutions here in Australia, we're obviously governed by APRA. Um, which is the prudential body. And so, you know, APRA gives lots of rules to banks around the risk of their book and what liquidity um, they need to hold against that book. So our team had to look at, you know, the banking book as a whole and look at the residential loan book and how the bank actually assessed risk within that. And so how, you know, the borrowers were you know put into buckets if you like put into buckets based on their on their risk profile and so they would look at things like you know the earning capacity the serviceability of their retail customers look at where their their property the security against the loan was held and look at their their repayment history so whether there'd been any defaults in their background current their repayments were so we'd look at that yes as you say mike as as a whole um, and then the bank would would put what's called provisions for loss against uh, that loan book another part of my job was to actually look at really big loans so the um, commercial customers and those were you know, there were borrowings related to huge projects, infrastructure projects, big residential towers, for example, yeah. at Docklands, there was a lot going on there as well. So looking at, you know, how quickly those were sold, bands, and and what was the likelihood that they would, you know, all go on to be sold and the loan could, you know, repaid as planned. So it was really, really interesting, and that gave me a great insight into credit risk from a lender perspective, but also borrowing and how banks actually look at, at. The borrowing capacity of uh, their clients, and also the servicing capacity. So, how how um, likely they are to be able to, you know, meet the interest obligation, but also the repayment obligations. And it's interesting; every bank is different, and every bank's loan book is different. So, I think if you're a consumer out there looking at borrowing, you really need to understand that. And understand why it's probably not the best idea for most people to just walk straight into their branch or go straight with the bank who offers them their savings account. Every bank has different products and it's based on what, what their loan book looks like and, and how overall their loan book is relative to ACRA, the the regulator's liquidity requirements.
0: That's really interesting, isn't it? Because you think that when you're approaching a bank, it's all about you, right? It's about how much you earn, you know, how much you owe elsewhere. But it could really be your local bank that you've been going to for however long has just funded a project for a $200 million residential tower or a mine expansion. So they actually kind of want to de-risk the rest of the portfolio so they'll only be willing to lend to a certain amount which is completely outside of you as a person right so that's where you're kind of saying you need a broker I assume
1: yeah exactly and how, how and where banks are borrowing from at any given time and what what rate they're able to get because against every loan that they borrow every I guess basket of loans they're they're borrowing against that so they're going out to market and borrowing to give you the money And so that will drive the rate that they're able to give you at any given time. Mm. And so it really is important that you speak to you know a broker and get the, the very best product and the very best you know rate that, and, that you possibly can.
0: That's an amazing insight. I mean, as soon as you told me about that, I thought, we, I'm going to have to ask you about this. Now, the, the main sort of thread or the theme for this podcast is common pitfalls that investors make. Now, obviously, finance can be a, a huge part of the property investment game, right? You get to a certain level, it, it is a finance game. Are there any other tips around the financing or are there some other things that you think really stand out to you in your dealings with property investors?
1: Yeah, I think from a financial perspective too often an investor will just, particularly if they're not an experienced investor, will just think about the two things. They'll think about what's my my loan repayment and whether that's interest or interest and principal and then they'll think of the rent. But a big missing piece of the puzzle is all the other outgoings that, Come along with owning and holding a property, things like insurance and maintenance. So it's really important that they catch all, all of those outgoings and, you know, working with someone like me or uh, even, even some brokers will help you out with those calculations. And then I think understanding, you know, what's the net cash flow? and Because that will really dictate what type of property and, and, and where you're going to find it in terms of your purchase. Because is it, you know, do you have some cash flow that you can put in every month? to go after a different type of property or do you really need it to be neutral in terms of cash flow or does it need to be actually funding you so it's it's really important to be clear on the goals like at the very outset before you do anything at all you know why am I buying this property what do I want it to do for me because that very question alone will then you know dictate a lot of the decisions that you make from there
0: and is that a common thing that you see property investors come to you saying you know I want to buy an investment property it might just be That much detail, or they might just kind of say, "I want to buy one because I'm paying too much tax, or because you know I see properties likely to boom." You know, what's the typical mindset? What what's the typical level of sophistication for investors when they come to you?
1: It really varies Um, a lot, unfortunately. Well, unfortunately, but also fortunately, because I can add a lot of value. Um, A lot of people just say, "Oh, I know I've got equity in my house. I want to do something with it." That's very very common. And, um, you know, I think I should buy an investment property. And so from there, it's a great conversation starter because then we can start to unpack and go through down a couple of rabbit holes about, you know, just exploring exactly just the complexities of an investment property purchase and, um, and all the different questions that you need to be able to answer to make a good purchase. So that, that's when we start to talk about you know financial planning and tax planning and all that sort of thing and i can make sure that you know they educate themselves or i can put them in contact with a professional who can help them work through um, some of those considerations
0: the give for growth property investing podcast is presented by our business mcg quantity surveyors you're an investor or a property professional looking to get the best tax depreciation deductions for yourself or your clients, please get in touch with us at mcgqs.com.au. It's our mission to help as many property investors as we can to maximize their claims and maximize their property education as well. Yeah, I think that's it's, it. It'd be interesting to be a fly on the wall in some of those conversations. I, I suppose people have an innate sense that they want to provide for themselves in the future, they want to be able to retire comfortably or have assets to pass on to their children. You know, there's obviously a positive idea behind it and there's nothing necessarily wrong from not having that level of sophistication about the actual plan. But that's where the importance of a team really comes to the fore, right? Is that another thing that you sort of see as a common pitfall with investors, that they don't understand the the expertise that they can have by people in those different positions?
1: Yeah, hundred percent, and and even just down to getting the right right loan product, you know, fixed versus variable interest, because there are there are consequences and ramifications that can bite you down the track if you don't get that right. Mm-hmm. Um, but from the time horizon is a really big one, Mike, actually, and you know you talked about retirement and investing, but a lot of people don't think about. Other life milestones, I guess, that making smart investment choices a bit earlier in life can actually finance. And and things like, you know, private school, for example, for your children. Property is is a, a longer investment time horizon. I guess get thinking about it at the right time. You could potentially purchase a property that will actually go a long way into funding for example, private school fees um, for your children, if that's something that that perhaps your um, your career or job type wouldn't ordinarily fund and you thought might be out of reach. So having the conversations a bit earlier rather than later can be actually quite powerful to change some, some dynamics in your wealth or lifestyle and, and that of your family. So I, I really encourage people not just to think of things like retirement and particularly for younger people, it can seem really far off, and, yeah. and it's not particularly exciting or sexy to think about retirement, you know, when you're in your, your mid to late 30s. I mean, yeah. we're still thinking of of much more fun things. Maybe it's a lifestyle property that they want to, you know, fund down the track. Maybe it's that they've bought a bit of a fixer-upper and they, they know they're not going to be able to save enough, so they want another property to do the growth for them so that they can then, you know, cash in on that equity uplift down the track.
0: Mm, yeah, I think in my early 30s I still had – for super funds, you know that's what you do when you're young, right? You make stupid decisions. Um, so I think that's that's good. It's, you know it's not just all about oh one day I'm going to be old and I'm going to need money. You know, there's a lot that you can actually do with investing. It's not just about you know not being in a nursing home when you're in your 90s. When it comes to the the investment dealings that you do. How does this sort of data geek background of yours actually help when it comes to securing a property? Because, you know, a a lot of people get very interested in the hot spotting and they look at the data and they might understand, you know, days on markets or or yields or vendor discounting, all of those metrics that are often quoted in the media. How do you make sense of that as a person and, and get that to the actual point of, I've shortlisted this property and it it makes sense for you as an investor?
1: Yeah, a great question. There's a couple of different factors that certainly go into that shortlisting and and some of those will be driven by a lender. For example, you know, certain... Postcodes or town sizes in regional Victorias are just off limits if, if you're borrowing a certain um, amount from a lender. So, so sometimes those things can can clip your wings a little bit in terms of where you're looking. But you know, data can be the cause, I'll say, of a lot of sort of analysis paralysis. It can be really hard to know you know how to interpret and use data to your best advantage but we I always start with the data and start by principles of supply and demand really you know what is it that we are looking for and how I guess scarce or not is it and when we talk about, I want to have good supply um, so that we're not competing too much. And then if it's an investment property, particularly the main factor is, is that you want to have demand. And so you want to be able to let your property to, you know, a captive audience at the best and a good audience, a quality audience of, of tenant at your, at your best possible uh, rental return. So we target, you know, things like vacancy rates and the average yield for sure. So that's kind of to answer your question. Um, yep. The other, the other thing is, is that a lot of investors that we're talking about pitfalls today. A lot of in or unsophisticated investors prefer to buy near to home. And there's a couple of reasons why they prefer that mm. is because it, it makes them feel a little bit better that they can do a drive by and just make sure that everything looks okay. Yeah. Um, and some investors also consider themselves a bit, a bit handy and that's a, a good cost saving if they're just able to duck over and, and take care of some of the small, you know, maintenance, maintenance things along the way. Yeah. Um, so we, we could pretty quickly put that one to bed and just say that's, you know, and explain why, you know, that's, is unlikely to be the best possible outcome for them from an investment decision, and then um, and then move on to where where the data is going to get their, them closer to their their goals for that particular investment.
0: I think that's that's a really interesting point, right? Because if we if we if we zero in on that um, that idea that they can drive by the property or they're available to to do some maintenance, if you're thinking, look, I, I want to be Close to a place because you know I don't want to have to have an electrician come and charge me three hundred dollars to fit a light bulb, right? Th- those those are those are real kind of concerns, but. As you were talking about that, I, I thought I'll get up my little spreadsheet, right? Because Narelle will appreciate an Excel spreadsheet. I know she will. Um, if you're talking about, let's say, a property worth $400,000 and one of them grows 5% and one of them grows 6%, that's a $4,000 difference, twenty or $24,000. Now, if you're wanting something that's close to where you live, you're really sort of minimising that pool of potential investment properties where if you're casting a wide net... Say on Australia, for example, the argument to say that you couldn't do one percent better from a growth point of view and 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 make that that extra amount of money that's kind of silly, right? Like, yes, it might actually be worth paying a thousand dollars to get that light bulb changed.
1: A hundred percent, and then you add in the the compounding factor of mm. that that one percent growing on the one percent every year is is just huge, and so. And the other, the other pitfall, you know, along a similar vein is, you know, stepping in to, to act as the property manager themselves. That is another just absolute no-no from my perspective. Again, you know, same as you, you know, most people aren't, you know, tax and accounting experts, they're not mortgage broking experts, they're not property buying experts, they're they're not across all of the the legislative and compliance requirements of being, you know, a property manager. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that's definitely a common pitfall that I see a lot of people wanting to save some costs um, on their investment property.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's human, isn't it? I mean, the idea that you know, you pay $1,000 for a light globe. I mean, I'm being a little bit silly, but uh, immediately you get this kind of knee-jerk reaction to it, like, oh, that's terrible. But in context, right, when we talk about the difference in the compound, it's kind of like, yeah, that's the better investment in in that scenario. So I think it's good to sometimes challenge people like that. So in rounding us off, Narelle, could you think of maybe your top sort of two to three um, tips um, for property investors to make sure that they're not those investors that are making those common pitfalls that we're talking about today.
1: Yeah, I think back to the point that I raised earlier about, you know, unpacking and understanding exactly why you're purchasing the property in the first place. What is the goal? And that will come down to, you know, the cash flow needs or requirements that you have, um, the investment time horizon when you're hoping for that, um, you know, to Vegas cash in on, on that growth. The other point or piece of advice I would say again on the similar vein is, is keep your emotion out of it. When it's an investment property, you know, it, it, it doesn't need to be in the same suburb and it probably doesn't actually stack up um, in terms of the analysis for for what that property needs to do and the goals that you have for that property and it's not anywhere that you need to live so keep the emotions out of it Um, it needs to be a property that will be attractive to quality tenants to generate a a strong yield for you and the other piece that I wanted to say is just understand all those financials, you know, back to front, because you really want to plan, you know, down to the dollar as to what this property is going to to cost you or return you and make sure that you've captured all of the outgoings to make sure that you're not, you're not finding yourself in a situation where you've purchased something and you've, you know, stuck your neck out that you can't afford. So really run all those numbers and get professional help. Um, to support you if you can and um, my final top tip is so many people forget to do it but just have a little bit of an emergency fund it's not just those outgoings but just think about you know what happens if the hot water service blows up that's your maintenance kitty for that entire year so Mm. make sure that you just have five thousand dollars for argument's sake just um, sitting there for a rainy day just in case you need to call on it because believe me it, it it will happen when when it's least convenient for you to <laughs> happens so Just knowing you've got that peace of mind, it will help you sleep well
0: at night. Yeah, the universe seems to know when you've sort of you've, you've eaten down your buffer a little bit, and then bam, something happens. I think those that that's uh, I think I, that technically might even be six tips there or so you've over delivered. So, <laughs> thank you very much for that. That's some gold that you've shared with us today. I really appreciate that, and hope to have you back again soon. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me, Mike. Cheers.